Well, this is a good question that comes in from MSTL144. Uh, and it's in response to our That Day Will Not Come Unless post that we did some time back. Uh, I have a question. Can you explain how we might be sure we are not living in the past, or I'm sorry, in the post-millennial time when the devil is loosed for a season? I've heard some recent perspectives that we may be. Personally, I hope not for some reason, but I'm not sure how uh, one could tell. Many thanks and blessings to you and your church. Well, many thanks and blessings to you and yours as well. I appreciate the question. And um, uh, open, if you would, open with me to Revelation chapter 20. And let's read the first 10 verses where the millennial uh, period is specifically spoken of in the New Testament. I should say, as you're turning to it, that the millennial kingdom... Uh, is spoken of broadly throughout the Old Testament, uh, so much so that it really clearly becomes obvious that this was the apostles, um, this undergirded the apostles' messianic hope in the time of Jesus' coming, when uh, when he was ministering with them and doing the signs and wonders that 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 he told John the Baptist's followers to go back and tell John about. In other words, he was affirming that he is the Messiah even though things did not seem to be unfolding the way that John the Baptist would have expected them to. Uh, matter of fact, ultimately, when Christ is arrested, scourged, crucified, buried, uh, the messianic hopes of the apostles and all of his disciples that had been following him for three and a half years uh, were dashed. They, they thought, how can this be? He was the Messiah. He even rode into Jerusalem on, the, uh, on, on a donkey as, in accordance with, uh, uh, with Zechariah 9.9 on the very day that Daniel predicted he would in Daniel 9, 24 through 26. And so the idea of him being Messiah was clearly established by Jesus himself. He went out of his way to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. Uh, However, he did not fulfill all of the hopes that the messianic promises uh, engendered. And so uh, when he was crucified, buried, everyone thought it was over and they were mistaken. What happened? But then he rose from the dead and once again, those messianic hopes are rekindled. Uh, at least we know for sure among the disciples who in his conversation with them prior to his ascension, um, his ascending to heaven, asked him, will you then restore the kingdom to Israel? So they were still living in that sense that, okay, there is it's still coming, but it just wasn't the way we expected. So this is all built on what the Old Testament says. One thing the Old Testament doesn't tell us is how long that period will be. The idea of the coming kingdom uh, was uh, was firmly established. Matter of fact, Jesus even encouraged his disciples, pray, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the millennial kingdom, as we refer to it now, they would have only referred to it as the kingdom in the Old Testament uh, era or even during the gospel era. But ultimately, we understand now that it's a thousand year period of time uh, as we look at Revelation chapter 20. So let's read the first 10 verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Uh, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Then I uh, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark in their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And this is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, and surrounded uh, the camp of the saints and the beloved city, speaking of Jerusalem, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Following this, we see the great white throne judgment. Uh, Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. And then we see a new heavens and a new earth as God makes all things new. So, but this period, this uh, this section of scripture, uh, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, verses 1 through 10, uh, not only refers to the kingdom age, but actually tells us how long it's going to be. And three guesses how long that is. It was mentioned, I think, six times in those uh, first seven of the 10 verses we read. A thousand years. Um, I want to take just a second here uh, to, to um, mention that there are a couple of views on this period of time called the millennial kingdom. Uh, one is the literalist view, one that is futurist and literalist. That is where I come from. I'm on this side of, of the discussion. I believe that the, the millennial kingdom is a literal period of time of a thousand years. In other words, when Christ returns, like we see in Revelation 19.11, and he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, all of those who've gathered against him uh, in Armageddon are ultimately killed, and, and, and they will await final judgment. But soon after that, he ultimately establishes what is again known as the Millennial Kingdom. I believe that it happens after Christ's return. I am a premillennialist. I believe Christ returns prior to the Millennial Kingdom, and that he establishes that kingdom, and that it will last, as it says in the text, a thousand years. That is where we get the term millennial in the Millennial Kingdom title. Uh, millennia or mille, meaning a thousand years. I believe that will literally be a period of time that is yet future from our day now. Uh, again, I'm going to more specifically answer some of the whys, I believe, that in answering that question. But that is one view, the literalist, futuralist, premillennial view, the idea that the millennial kingdom will be, will be literally established for a thousand years. Again, in response to Jesus' encouragement for us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that is a literal thing. Uh, um, uh, Luke chapter one, uh, Gabriel tells Mary, he will sit on the throne of his father, David forever. Psalm two, he will rule and reign with a rod of iron, all this kind of stuff. This period of time that we're talking about, um, is, is something that will happen in plain sight for all of the world to see. The other view of the millennium is what's called the amillennial view. Now, amillennial or ah being the negative in the Greek, no thousand years would say, would would refer to the idea that in that view in the amillennial view there is not the belief in a literal thousand year kingdom like I just described in the literalist view, uh, but rather instead the millennium. Uh, sadly, the the word amillennial can sometimes be misinterpreted in into meaning that uh, into not understanding that while an amillennialist does not believe in a thousand year millennial reign. An amillennialist does believe in what's called a, a a millennial kingdom period, or the idea that the period of time between Christ's first coming, or maybe more strictly the resurrection uh, and the church age, really, uh, until the second coming of Christ, that is the millennial period. In other words, they don't believe in the, that it's a thousand years. It is however long it is until Christ returns, which could be whenever. 
typically, eschatology in the amillennial view is highly allegorical. Uh, there are elements that are seen as literal, like, for example, a new heavens and new earth, Christ literally returning, um, the idea of a great white throne judgment. These things are seen as literal things, but the idea of a thousand-year kingdom is allegorized, is seen as allegorical, I should say, and so, well, or it is allegorized. And so um, that is that is a view that I don't espouse. Uh, there are many solid believing Christians that are solid in their faith, love Jesus, love the Word of God. They're not heretics. They're not off on some weird thing. It's just that they would hold that when it comes to eschatology, biblical eschatology, much of what we read about in places like Revelation or Daniel, uh, would would <clears throat> or other places that would speak of a of the kingdom age and all that kind of thing, are not really seen as being able to be read just like it says, but rather are to be seen allegorically. Eschatology is typically put into a different category when it comes to biblical interpretation or hermeneutic. Um, I find that personally, I find that to be inconsistent. I don't think there's any solid reason why we need to put all of that eschatological content from Scripture into a different category for interpretation. I think there are things within biblical uh, eschatology that certainly are intended to be seen as symbolic or allegorical. But as an entire body of work, I don't think that that's consi- uh, that's that's a, an appropriate way to to develop a consistent hermeneutic throughout the scripture. Um, I think uh, one glaring reason I would just give for that before I move on would be that when it came to the promises of Messiah's first coming, including the very day of his presentation as Messiah, these things were exacting in their description. So if we're going to allegorize events surrounding Christ's second coming, why would we do that if we were not supposed to do that in regard to his first coming? Jesus expected his people, and the leadership especially, to recognize the time of his first coming, and he indicted them for not knowing that. And so I I would imagine that the same indictment would fall upon us if we were to take, uh, you know, we're not to recognize the signs of his second coming. So uh, and that's just one argument. But, but anyway, so um, those are the two views. There is the literalist futurist view, the premillennial view, the idea that Christ will come and then establish a literal thousand year period of time that will be called the kingdom age in fulfillment of the promises given to his people. And thankfully, as those grafted on the vine, we also will rule and reign with them, uh, with him. But then there's the other view, the amillennial view, which believes that much of this is actually to be seen as allegorical, meaning that we are living currently in the kingdom age, uh, the period of time known generally speaking, as the church age, would be the millennial period, the period of time when the gospel is free to move about the earth and be spread around the earth, um, a time when, um, when, when Satan is bound in the sense that he's not able to prohibit the gospel message from going forth. Uh, I, I personally, as a Westerner, I can see where one might embrace that idea. But having become familiar with other parts of the world where the gospel is not necessarily uh, uh, as freely, uh, moving so freely, I, I think it's a tough sell to say that Satan is bound. Um, I, uh, there, and let me just speak to a couple of, of reasons now, specifically answering the question, how do we know we're not in the, millenn- the post-millennial period now when Satan has been loosed? Um, first off, um, and let me kind of build this. So the period of time we're living in right now is certainly marked by wickedness, evil, unbelief, all kinds of things like that. Uh, And while we do see things in an eschatological sense 
picking up speed. A lot of things are starting to happen that are bringing together lots of pieces of the puzzle. By and large, though, what we're seeing today is just the continuing increase of wickedness and rebellion against God that has been going on for all of time, really since the fall. So there hasn't been a paradigm shift in that. There hasn't been a quantum leap forward in wickedness or evil or uh, or anything like that, but rather it's been the ongoing progression of departure from the truth and, and rejection of God and that kind of thing. It may be intensifying somewhat, but there hasn't been a spot, and this is where I'll bring a second element in, there hasn't been a point at which clearly Satan has been bound. In other words, Satan is as much the God of this age now as he ever has been. Um, we don't see any particular increase of persecution of Christians that hasn't existed all throughout time since the beginning of the church. Um, again, it may be intensifying, but it's it's something that's been going on pretty consistently and increasingly throughout history. There really hasn't been a period, much less a thousand-year period, when that really came to a cease, where we could then, and again, just to kind of build on this point, where we've seen where Christ is really ruling and reigning like he's described to be in Scripture. Yes, he is the Lord of all the earth, but he always is. You know, he is allowing the things to go on that are going on now to bring us to a point He's no less the Lord of all things now than he has been at all. One day, as we see in Revelation eleven fifteen, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, we will see that fully realized one day where he will literally rule and reign and will not allow sin to persist. Satan will be bound where he will have no direct influence. I just, I, I really don't know how we can say that's happening today. Uh, there's been no period of time that we can point to and say, oh, this is the, the period of time when Satan was bound. Uh, I think it was Nietzsche said, um, you know, with the, with the death of God in the 60s would come the bloodiest uh, century in man's history after that. Well, I mean, it was pretty bloody all the way up until then, and then it turned out he was sort of right. I mean, things have gotten extremely bloody in terms of um, the callousness and just the, the, the means that we have to destroy life and all these kinds of things. Uh, terrorism has exploded and that kind of thing. But again, there was no gap where where there was like peace all of a sudden for a huge period of time. And so to simply say that the gospel has free reign, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily true in many parts of the world. It's true in the West, but it's certainly not true globally. Uh, and I, I think it's becoming less so uh, as we as we progress on. Not, you know, I don't know if we've ever really had a uh, a total freedom to just share the gospel all the time. Um, so, but again, and so again, that idea, but then also again, the idea that Christ clearly has not visibly been ruling and reigning. There's been no literal fulfilling of the promise to Israel. As a matter of fact, Israel has been in unbelief, you know, since before the dispersion, right? I mean, it's like the, the beginning of the church, they were Jewish, and then the Gentiles came in and that kind of thing. But but Israel, as a nation to whom these promises are made, uh, has never seen the fulfilling of, of the millennial kingdom. Um, matter of fact, Christ, uh, you know, Jesus himself, when Gabriel talks to Mary, says he will sit on the throne of his father David forever. The implication being that when that kingdom is established, you know, I mean, that's just how it's going to be from now on. He never took the throne yet. And so uh, I think there's a lot of uh, very plain sense looking at history 
and it just doesn't seem to line up scripturally. Let's kind of go through the passage as well and kind of speak to some of these things as well. Um, uh, again, the idea starts in verse 1, where an angel comes down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He lays hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and binds him for a thousand years, casting him into the bottomless pit and shutting him up and setting a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Um, I have heard it said that if Satan was taken out of the world, there'd be enough residual evil in the world where you might not notice for a time. I don't know if that's really true or not. Walter Martin said that, and I think there's there's some truth to it. But I don't know that you could really arguably say that Satan is not behind what we're seeing going on in the world around us. Not just in terms of the bloodshed, but in terms of the deception, in terms of the uh, straight-on assaults of, of the historic Christian faith. Progressivism is a move of Satan, uh, very clearly, and it's, and it's completely... Uh, destroying the gospel, its implications, attacking all of the fundamentals of the faith. Um, it, you know, and Paul said in the last days, there would be deception, uh, doctrines of demons and such, right? So we know that Satan's influence is not really been curtailed at all. Um, and so he is still having influence on the world around us. He is, in fact, still deceiving the nations. Uh, we also, in verse 4, don't see where thrones are set up and judgment committed to them, uh, those who were beheaded for their witness and having not taken the mark of the beast. Again, if we allegorize that, then we can come up with any explanation of how that might have been fulfilled. But the scripture speaks straightforwardly. The Antichrist will come on the scene. People will be forced to take a mark on their right hand or their forehead uh, under the uh, under the uh, uh, under the 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 direction of of this image. Uh, into whom life is breathed by the false prophet. I mean, Revelation 13. All these things are described in in pretty vivid detail. And these here in chapter 20 are being spoken of as those who were beheaded for not taking the mark. In other words, under the Antichrist, these were those who were persecuted and killed by virtue of beheading in the era when the mark of the beast was on the scene. Uh, So we didn't see that happen yet. Uh, again, unless we're going to allegorize everything, we have to admit that that has not happened yet. Uh, they also have not been resurrected and are not have not ruled and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, this term a thousand years or the thousand years uh, has been mentioned a number of times uh, in this passage. The rest of the dead did not live again. In other words, we've not seen the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. We've not seen uh, any who are dead in Christ raised up. We've not seen the rapture of the church uh, or any of these things. We've not seen a covenant confirmed by Antichrist. We've not um, uh, seen anything, uh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the causing the offerings and sacrifices to cease in the temple that is taking place during the time of Antichrist. We've not seen that happen. Um, uh, so it's, it's hard, really, if we're going to take a straightforward uh, reading of the text of Scripture describing this time, not just in chapter 20, but even in the chapters leading up to chapter 20, um, the two witnesses coming on the scene and being killed by Antichrist, um, the 144,000 witnesses. Um, um, you could look at Revelation 12 and the idea that Israel uh, being chased off into the wilderness uh, where they're protected for 1260 days. That speaks of the second half of the tribulation period, where ultimately they will be rescued by Messiah when he comes. So there's, you know, there's all of these things that we have to either dismiss or allegorize uh, in order to 
to put ourselves now today in a period of time that's post-millennium. We'd have to discount the thousand years and say that's not really what it is. Um, I'm not even sure that being in a post-millennial era right now even fits into an amillennial view, uh, because at, at least in that view, there is still the ex- expectation that Christ will return. So we've not seen him visibly return. So we can't be post-millennium. Uh, so anyway, so I think these, in my mind, without just kind of droning on and on and on, I think these are sufficient reasons uh, to sort of discount the idea that we have somehow now moved past the millennium. We've we've experienced the millennium, and now we're in a post-millennial era where Satan's now been loosed. Uh, I think that that period of time is still yet future, way more than a thousand years at this point, because you know, we we haven't seen, again, the rapture, we haven't seen the second coming, Antichrist is not on the scene, any of the things that precipitate the end of the millennial period, uh, so, uh, or precede the, the, um, the, the end of the millennial period. So, um, so I hope that helps. Uh, again, if, if nothing else, my, my one hope that I hope has been brought out in this is, is again, the importance, I believe very firmly, the importance of letting the text drive the conversation letting the text di- dictate what's going to be happening and how it's going to be happening, what it'll look like when it happens. Uh, and I would strongly urge against taking a uh, an allegorical approach to our understanding of, of eschatology. I'm not discounting that there are things that are allegorical. I've mentioned Revelation 13. Well, Revelation 13 describes a beast with multiple heads and horns and all these kinds of things that there's not going to be a monster on the earth that looks like that in the eyes of men that is speaking of a leader who ultimately rises up out of a group of nations that are allegorized by that symbolism. But we know that because in Daniel chapter 7, we see the same imagery and Daniel asks what it means and he's told what it means. And it means essentially what I just described. And so... uh, so we understand that allegory is used, but that doesn't give license to allegorize everything in the in the uh, in the genre of eschatology and scripture. So, um, and I, again, I think when we do that, when we when we take an allegorical view, or we believe that all of it is intended to be seen as symbolic, or or the vast majority of it at least, I think it opens up our interpretation to such a strong level of subjectivity that you literally could come up with any number of interpretations of what these things mean. And any number of interpretations have been offered as to what these things mean, rather than just taking them at face value. Again, key examples of this would be, again, Revelation 13, with the mention of this and the description of this beast, uh, this this um, this multifaceted beast that is described in Daniel chapter 7, and the explanation is given. Revelation 12 is the other example that I generally lean toward in this, where there is a woman with the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, and she gives birth to a man-child who is caught up to heaven in that, and she's persecuted then by the dragon and driven into the wilderness, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago. Well, this this image of the woman with the sun, moon, and stars uh, has often been mistakenly seen as representing the church. Um, or, or, or the man-child uh, that clearly is Christ uh, is, is being seen as being the church. And there's just all these misinterpretations of this. But the description of the woman is given to us not just in Revelation 12, but this same imagery is given to us in Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph um, has a dream. And this dream is this imagery. And his father Jacob actually interprets it for us. 
uh, the sun and the moon and the stars, your mother and I and your brothers. Are we all going to bow down to your star? Spe- this, this, this imagery of this woman speaks of Israel. The man-child is clearly Christ who is born of Israel, born under the law, right? Uh, born of a woman. She, he has humanity. He's born of Mary. And so therefore, uh, you know, the woman's not Mary per se in Revelation 12, but rather Israel. He is born of Mary, but the idea that it's not Mary that's chased into the wilderness, it's Israel that's chased into the wilderness. And so we want to be careful when we sort of um, try to just reinterpret that from a lens that doesn't have a scriptural, a sound scriptural foundation. So uh, again, I'm, I'm very much opposed to the idea of allegorizing everything in, again, the genre of biblical eschatology. I think that we want to first take the text at face value, and if there is clearly reason to see it as symbolic or allegorical, then we do it. Even then, leaving room for the possibility that it may actually be as literal as it says. You know, it, it, it may literally speak of what it intends to speak of. Um, but, but if there seems to be clear reason to, to, to see it as symbolic, then okay, then we do that. But we don't take the whole genre that way. Again, I think that creates a very subjective, not to mention inconsistent, uh, hermeneutic. So, uh, so MSTL one forty four. Uh, I hope that uh, that that gives some food for thought, as always, and uh, with the hope that we answered the question, but also maybe encouraged a strong sense of reading the text for what it says and letting that. Uh, truly be what forms uh, uh, our understanding of the passage. So thanks for asking. I really appreciate the question. And if you have any questions or thoughts you'd like to share, you can do so anytime you like. You can put a comment in our comment section here on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to go to, uh, if you want to email, you can do that at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. Um, if, uh, uh, if, if, if you'd like to listen to, uh, the audio version of this rather than watch the dazzling, exciting video version that we put out uh, all the time. Um, of course I'm being tongue in cheek. There's no fireworks or anything. It's just me sitting on my mug in front of my camera here. But, uh, uh if you want to just listen to the audio version, you can go to my website at parsonspad.com and on the left side column, there's a link there to the audio version as well. So certainly appreciate you watching and listening and, um, uh, and, uh, until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Pray that the Lord would lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace forever. Father, thank you. We praise you for the hope and plans that you have uh, laid out before us. We thank you for what is yet to come. And we pray for the uh, for, for us right now, for such a time as this that you've called us to, that we would be about your business until we, uh, you know, as we see the things around us unfolding in accordance with your word. So we do pray that you would accomplish your eternal purposes, that, Lord, you would bring about uh, the circumstances around us to where um, where we see them unfold. We see Christ coming for his bride. Uh, we pray that that would be soon. But, Father, we also pray, uh, Lord, for those who are lost, that you would use us uh, in your uh, as instruments in your hand to reach out to them in these days in which we're living. So thank you, Father, for your grace and goodness toward us and certainly toward all of those uh, to whom you are uh, uh, seeking to have the gospel uh, go forth to. So we love you, Lord. We do praise you. We do bless you. And we long to see you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.